As we consider the message this morning entitled Final Destination, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we go and ask for the Lord to give guidance and clarity to this message. Gracious Father in heaven, the opportunity is mine, but the responsibility is great. And I ask now that you will give me a clear voice and a clear mind that I may be able to glorify you through this message and bring someone to consider and make a decision about their final destination. Take these words, Lord, and anoint them that you will find that fertile soil in which to sow the seeds of kingdom living. In Jesus' name I ask and pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a scripture that I know you've read before, but it appropriately lays the foundation for the message, Final Destination. The Apostle Paul encapsulates something that we often miss. And he introduces us in this verse to an understanding of how this verse affects our final destination. And I'm going to read it. Then I'm going to lay some foundation and slowly walk you through the fact that your final destination has a lot to do with what takes place here and now. I'm not going to run ahead of myself. I'm going to allow the sermon to unfold as God has given it to me. But listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he says, Therefore, if anyone is where? In Christ. He is a new creation. I could spend a whole hour on that alone. Old things have passed away. Said another way, you had a funeral for the old things. Buried them. Come on, somebody, help me out. So nice to take the way you used to live and bury it and walk away from it. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things. How many things? All things have become new. You know, it's hard to tell people what it's like to be a Christian. I remember years ago when my wife and I were sharing with some of our congregation, this very church, about the clear waters of the Virgin Islands. And we had people in our congregation that had never left Thompsonville, never left West Frankfurt never saw an ocean. 
And when we did our 25th wedding anniversary, we invited them to go with us to the Virgin Islands. And I remember Dee Hildebrand went, Cheryl Volsh went, Gloria and Tracy Nolan went, uh, Angela Pekarczyk. There was a clearinghouse. A lot of people went. And they were amazed. I remember very vividly when we got to a place called Virgin Gorda, a British Virgin Island, where the water was so abundantly clear that you really couldn't tell how far away the bottom was. And I could, I could see that vivid picture that day when those on one of the four boats that we rented to go across from America, Virgin Islands, to Tortola, to Virgin Gorda, almost about an hour away in speedboats, when we lowered Tracy Nolan in her wheelchair into the clear water. She had never seen water that clear before. And Gloria said, oh my, I had never seen water this clear. Because up until that moment, Wren Lake was their only point of reference. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> so when people out here say they're going to the beach, I say, I'm not going with you. Because <laughs> if I can't see through that water, I'm not going in that water. But it's hard to tell people what it's like unless you go into the water yourself, unless you step down into something that transfigures the way you think about an ocean or a beach. And as I was thinking about the very development of experiences that some of us seek to avoid at all costs, it reminds me of the Christian life that some people try to avoid at all costs because they don't know how beautiful it is to get down into clear Christian living, clear water, when you could see the bottom, when you can see God's will unfolding beautifully before you. They fail to get on board. I remember when we got back from St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands, I forgot, I think Molly was in charge at the time, and Molly said, don't you guys ever do that again because we had nobody to lead out in production. <laughs> so all the people, in, a lot of the people in production had joined us in the Virgin Islands for the 25th wedding anniversary. But just recently, uh, after we boarded the plane to go to Aruba to celebrate our last anniversary, number 39, wow, how time flies. I shouldn't have said 39. You might start thinking I'm old. <laughs> Nothing is further from the truth. But just before the doors closed on the plane, the flight attendant announced, if your final destination is not Aruba, this is a good time to get off. Well, today, my message is for those that are concerned about their final destination. Because when the doors were shut, it was too late to change the final destination. You were going whether you wanted to go or not, but that is not the case with heaven. You're only going to go if you want to go. I remember one example where after we were seated on the plane, there was a young man that 
walked up to his seat and someone else was sitting in it and he complained to the flight attendant and says, that lady is sitting in my seat. And she said, sir, how could that be? We don't double book any seats. He looked at his ticket only to realize he was on the wrong flight. That doesn't happen anymore because you can't even get on the plane anymore unless your ticket is cleared at the gate electronically. But today there are many people for whom the door of eternal life is closing because they fail to make a decision about their final destination. And it's not always because they don't want to, but it's because many times people fail to understand what the final destination really is all about. You know, we think of our final destination as heaven. And because we haven't had what I call tangible evidence, there's enough evidence to know that the world is about to end, especially when you see what's happening in the news, how crazy the world is. Maybe I should just say how crazy America is. Just this week, uh, it was a tragedy to hear that the, one of the prime ministers in Japan, a former prime minister, was gunned down what was even more startling, they said that was the first gun casualty this year in Japan. With comparing to America, where we had, in the same time, we had 45,000 plus people killed by gun violence in America. If you want to look for signs of the end, look to America. They are everywhere. It's not what's happening outside of our country but the senseless violence taking place, who could think in, who could be in his right mind to think on a day when the nation is celebrating? To take out and go out without any conscience and begin to mow down precious lives on a day when people are celebrating independence. Only to be arrested and to say, well, he had another plan to go to another location in America. And as it was said on the news, it's becoming the norm in America. Lord, give us wisdom in America. Can you say amen? Pray. And I know the arguments of both ways. People say guns don't kill people. People kill people. But I honestly believe, it's my conviction, I'm not going to even discuss it with you, there are certain guns that should not be sold. You don't need an AR-15 to shoot a deer. What, are you going to shoot a herd of deer at one time? I mean, honestly, you don't need certain types of weapons. Are we planning some uprising to overthrow the government? Well, some people are. But it doesn't make sense. But when you begin to look at the final destination and how it affects who we are, Jesus did not want us to just focus on where we're going to end up. He wants us to focus on who we become while we prepare for the final destination. That's why Jesus threw the Pharisees into a tailspin when they asked for tangible evidence of the kingdom of God. His answer really upset the religious apple cart of the Pharisees. Look at what Jesus said. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
He answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is where? Is within you. Now that was odd to the Pharisees because they looked for a dimensional kingdom. They looked for a three-dimensional kingdom. They had so much pride in the building of the temple in Jerusalem. It was the, it was the stamp of their, of their joy. This monstrosity that just stood as a continual evidence that they were the chosen people of God. And even through the ministry of Jesus, the disciples were looking for the kingdom of God to come. And they were looking for the kingdom of God to come in a tangible way. But Jesus, by saying that the kingdom of God is not in observation, he was in essence saying, many of you are looking for the visible kingdom of God, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a kingdom that comes before the visible kingdom that is of greater importance than the physical, tangible kingdom itself. Notice what Matthew records in the introduction of Jesus through John the Baptist. Because when the Pharisees heard this phrase, it was not the first time that they were concerned about a dimensional kingdom. Look at what John the Baptist preached about the coming of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Actually, let me go back here. <clears throat> Actually, I didn't have that one. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. I skipped a scripture. The Bible says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that should be Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist, he was preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And many believed then that the kingdom of God was going to be manifested tangibly, that they were going to see the kingdom with their eyes, handle it with their hands, and even throughout the ministry of Christ. This was a concern, and this was a constant understanding in the minds of those who believed the words of Christ. Jesus himself also began to preach the same thing, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he commissioned his disciples to do the same. Notice Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 to 7. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is where? Is at hand. Now you notice, the Pharisees were told it's not tangible, you can't see it. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. And he told the disciples, when you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, preach to them saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To clarify it, Jesus was by no means dismissing, by no means dismissing the tangible physical kingdom. But he was saying that The invisible kingdom, the kingdom that comes before the kingdom comes, is the kingdom that occupied 
the greatest concern of Christ. Because, I'll use my wife and I as an example, when we were getting ready to go to Aruba, you know, it's amazing when you get ready to go on vacation how much junk you take with you. I mean, we had a, a small suitcase that was just for swimming. Had our snorkels, had our fins, had our life jackets, had all the water gear, you know, the anti-fog spray for the snorkels. And we thought about it, and we were talking about this last night. We said, isn't it nice that when Jesus comes, we don't have to take any of that stuff with us? I mean, right now, we're going through a purge. If you guys need anything, come to our house. We got about 70% of stuff we just want to give to somebody, anybody. If, you, if you're just planning on getting married, we could give you all your dishes, all your sheets. You want queen or king, you get choices. You want, you want pots and pans, we give you pots and You want a dining set? Got that too. It is so good to know that when Jesus comes, we don't have to take our junk with us to the kingdom. That's why a, a good, uh, experienced gentleman that I know, he told me his age, he says, he said, at my age, I don't buy stuff anymore. I'm getting rid of stuff. And at a certain stage in life, I don't know if you know that, you get to a certain point in life and you start asking questions like, do I really need that? Because we have boxes that we haven't opened yet since we moved here. And there is stuff we don't even know we have, Curtis. And the temptation is to open that box. But, but reason says, if you, if you haven't missed it, you don't need it. But you know, the inquisitive mind, you might think that there's some hidden treasure in a box that's covered with dust. And we got a shed with boxes in it. If you guys want to help us clear it out, come on over. Stuff that we know that we don't need to make it to the kingdom. You see, brethren, kingdom living is not intangible things. Kingdom living is a spiritual experience long before it is a physical reality. Long before we get into the kingdom, the Lord wants to get the kingdom into us. Long before we depart on a flight to our final destination, there's going to be a change in us long before we get to our destination. And it's like when you get on the plane and the pilot announces, We've started our descent. People start waking up. Flight attendants, please prepare the cabin for landing. Please, I've been on this so many times I could just recite the whole thing. Please return your tables to the upright, your seat to the upright and locked position. Please put away your stowaway items in the event that you took something out during the flight. Check your seat belt. Give the flight attendant the garbage in your seat. Get rid of all the stuff you have. And you'll notice that at that moment, nothing matters more than the destination. And then when you land, especially when it's a warm place, in many instances, the people on the plane, some of them start clapping. Oh, we've arrived. I want to tell you, you silent folk are going to clap when you get to heaven. 
Some of y'all are going to shout. Some of y'all that never said a tangible praise the Lord are going to say hallelujah. When you see the gleams of the golden morning, can I get an amen? amen? But kingdom living begins down here. The Apostle Paul, talking about the kingdom living, he captured it beautifully when he talked about it in Colossians chapter 1. He captured it beautifully because so many people, and I believe one of the reasons why people delay or postpone committing their lives to Christ is they fail to realize the beauty. What word did I just use? The beauty and the fulfillment of kingdom living. Why would I say that? I mean, I was raised in a city where you could do anything you want. I was raised in New York City. You could wake up. The city, matter of fact, you don't even have to wake up because the city never sleeps. I think New York is the quietest at about 4 o'clock in the morning. And it's going to be quiet for maybe about an hour and a half because at 5.30, traffic starts again. But it really never stops. Cities like Los Angeles and New York City and Miami, these cities that never sleep. So I was raised in a city where you can wake up any day and do whatever you want at any time, nobody telling you what to do. And for some reason, that kind of living, when it gets into the, your pores, when it gets into the way you think, when it gets into the way you breathe, it seems to be the only thing that's tangible until you turn your life over and give your life to Christ. Then all of a sudden, kingdom living that is not something that's easily adaptable because we have kingdom living and we have this nature within us that never naturally leads us in the direction of kingdom living. Because the nature we have does not want to be, it does not want to put itself at risk. So there's nothing natural about us that, that, that's going to say to us, you want to live right or do right or be right. But the Apostle Paul he encapsulated this so beautifully when he began to describe what kingdom living is all about. Notice what he said in Colossians 1 and verse 27. He said, to them, God willed to make known what are the, what's the next word? Riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is the mystery? Which is, say it together with me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is Paul saying? He says, there is no hope of glory until Christ is in you. You're not going to get into the kingdom until the kingdom gets into you. We don't, live in, we don't live in the kingdom life when we get to the kingdom. We begin the kingdom life now. And until you have experienced the kingdom life, you may be meandering in the maze of mediocrity on the edge of the pool and I've used the illustration before how difficult it is for somebody walking around the pool. It's been some hot days here in southern Illinois, some over 100 degrees and 90 plus percent humidity. Those were the days it was too hot. I was sneezing inside and outside. It was just too hot. I mean, it was just too hot. I'm in the house in air conditioning, sneezing because it's too cold. And I go outside and sneezing because it's too hot. But when you, when you immerse yourself in the, in the life, and, and why am I talking about this topic? Because I look at the disc jockey that I used to be. I look at that guy that loved to party. Anybody been there before? 
just loved, lived for a party. When the sun set, the demon came out. Even on Sabbath, when the sun set, we had a whole lot of Christian sinners in our church in New York. We would sing on Sabbath morning, to God be the glory. Sunset, where are you going to be at the party tonight? We had a whole lot of young folk at our church. We had a church of 1,200 members. And on Saturday night, good thing the Lord didn't come yet. We'd be all partying in a house somewhere, in a club somewhere, winding up all over each other. You know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all used to be drinking and smoking and involved in illicit behavior. You know what I'm talking about. Before Jesus. But Paul the Apostle, when he brought this scripture into the focus of the church at Colossia, he, he said to them, there is no hope of glory until Christ is inside of us. What does it mean to have Christ inside of you? There's a stopgap, and let me just make this very practical. There's a stopgap. There's something that happens within you when Christ is there. He's like the guardrail. He's like the flashing railroad crossing sign. He's the, he is the, the caution that says to you, this is not the way. Don't walk in it. This is the way. Walk in it. And when you begin to develop the kind of things, when your likes and Christ's likes are identical, when you begin to think of what it will take to please Christ and it pleases you, then all of a sudden you begin to experience kingdom living. When, when you know that the next thing you do is not the next thing that Christ would have you to do and it doesn't bother you, then you're living kingdom living. When your choices and the word of God begin to line up together, then you begin to recognize, wait a minute, I'm, I'm on the road to eternity. I, I, I'm going to bed tonight, and I'm trying to think of what to ask God to forgive me of, and the list is really small. Amen, somebody. It's so good to go to bed at night. Every night, my wife and I, you know, we go to bed, we confess our sins, and sometimes we're trying to figure, what was it? And it can't come back and say, Lord, if there's anything we said today or did today that has not pleased you, please forgive us of it. I want to go to bed at night with my record clear before the Lord. Right? Just in case you don't wake up in the morning, your bill is paid by the blood of the Lamb. And I know how beautiful that is because it was not always that way. Even growing up in the ministry, even living this life as a pastor, there were times that <clears throat> I, I, I want to go to bed and I have so much to confess that the nature of humanity in me is fighting against the, the Christ that wants to be in me. But it's so good to know that the, the, the nature that was fighting is no longer winning. But it's Jesus that's winning the fight on the inside. Can you say amen? 
Before we inhabit the kingdom, Jesus wants to inhabit us. Kingdom living begins down here. That's why the Apostle Paul was so determined. He understood, and who better than the Apostle Paul to make the comparisons between who he was and who he became. And the church of his day had a time adjusting because if you think about the Apostle Paul, he was not far removed from many of the churches to which he went and preached. His name was well known. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a well-educated man, a man of great influence, and a man who had a terrible reputation. So he didn't just assimilate into the Christian church like a guy walking in and getting baptized. He came, when, he came in with a reputation preceding him. So the church didn't just open arm and... This, that guy looked really familiar. Stoning of Stephen. I knew I saw him somewhere. And when you read the narrative in the Bible, there were other apostles that helped the apostle Paul assimilate into the Christian world. He didn't come in on his own and people just embraced him. So he had to build the reputation. He had to come out of the kingdom that he fought against to the kingdom that he now campaigned for. And so he understood the line of demarcation between where he was and where he is. And he always wanted people to know that the difference between where you were headed and where you are now headed is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why he said to Christians, and he says this to us today, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Notice what he says. He says, examine yourself. Who should we examine? Ourselves. As to whether you are in the faith. Then he goes on, test yourself. That's, that's a call of passion. Examine yourself. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is, there it is again, in you unless you are what? Disqualified. Unless indeed you are disqualified. He's in essence saying, you may be in the church, but Christ is not in you. You may be in the choir, but Christ is not, not in you. You may be in, involved in activity that campaigns for the goodness of the Lord, but he's not in you. And it's a dangerous thing to be in a place where we are. You know, we have so much spiritual activity here, so many good things we do. But it, it, it behooves us that we not become content with just doing things for the name of the Lord. Because you, you can get pretty prideful if you think, well, I just did 15 programs this week. We just taped 13 lessons, Sabbath school. I did, preached a sermon. I did a family worship. And you feel religious. Am I right? Because you, sp you, know, you spent all that time studying for 13 Sabbath school lessons and making sure that Curtis got all your sermons. I didn't get it to Curtis yet. That's why I'm talking like that. You've got to get all that lined up and you're going to do, you can host a Thursday night live and you feel religious at the end of the week and you look in the mirror and say, you are a dog. You're talking right, but you're not living right. So the Lord doesn't want us to just get involved in activity. He wants us to live right. What do you say? That's why Paul says, don't you know, unless Christ is in you, you're disqualified. When it comes to kingdom life, the natural person is disqualified. If kingdom life were acquired by money, then wealth would be the goal. If kingdom life were acquired by a degree, then education would be the target. But kingdom life is not based on wealth, possessions, education, fame, 
or position. Kingdom life is based on the inhabitation of Christ living in and through us. But if that seems hard, there's this natural and spiritual battle going on because the devil knows that when the things of Christ becomes the things that bring you joy, he has lost the battle. So I use my brother David as an example. I like to pick on David because he doesn't mind. You know, some of you have been here long enough to see David. And then the next David. And David the third. And David the fourth. And a lot of people say, oh, David's back. Wonder for how long. <laughs> you know, that's a joke amongst us. But it's not funny. Because the Bible says, a righteous man will fall seven times, but he gets up. Come on, say amen, somebody. It is not up to you to determine how many times a person comes back, but it is up to us to make sure that whenever they come back, our arms are open wide to be the encouraging arm. I want to do everything I can as David's pastor to make sure that David makes the kingdom. He knows that. You know, he's getting ready to go to AFCO. Ian is getting ready to go to AFCO. Men of God, can you say amen? God wants to use every one of us. But before Christ works through us, he wants to work where? In us. Because everybody has two destinations. Every one of us is faced with one of two destinations. The Apostle Paul made it very clear. Romans 6 and verse 23, he points these destinations out very clearly. He says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. It doesn't make sense to pay for what you really don't want when what you really need is a gift. Did you get that? Why pay for what you really don't want when what you really need is a gift? That's why the Lord made it clear, even of old. A lot of times people don't think that the gospel is in the Old Testament. The gospel is all throughout the Bible. When the Israelites were facing destinations, the Lord made it clear to them in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. He made it clear, every day we wake up, we're making choices about our destination. And he loves us so much that he doesn't leave the final choice up to us without nudging us in the direction of the best choice. Notice what he says in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. That I have set before you, what are the two choices? Life and what else? Death. Blessings and what else? Cursing. Therefore, Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Choose. Let's say that together. What's the next word? Life. <clears throat> now, isn't it odd that choice and life are together in the scriptures? And the devil has found a classic way of making choice and life opposite in human life. Isn't that sad? Choose. Do you have the right to choose? What does the Lord say? Choose. Life. 
in the scriptures, they are the same. But in the world, they're not. We've got to follow the scriptures and always make a choice in favor of life. Can the church say amen? That both you and your descendants, because the choice you make not only affects you, but affects those who are coming after you. A lot of times we think we live to ourselves, but the choice you make as a parent, the choice you make as a brother or sister in Christ, the choice you make as a Christian affects not only you, but it also affects those who come after you. That's why one of the most touching stories in the scripture comes to the, comes to the face when Jesus has a personal one-to-one -one discussion. This morning when Ryan was giving the, um, the offering appeal, for God so loved the world that he gave. That was not a general statement made to a large crowd. That was a statement made to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. That was a one-to-one -one conversation, a one-to-one -one word of encouragement. But you find the story unfolding in John chapter 3 and verse 1, how beautiful the Lord made it clear that he came not to change just those who were lost, but what's so fitting about this story <clears throat> is he came to a man who was a ruler. He came to a religious man. He came to change his direction. And he came to one who was used to being in charge. Notice these words in John chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And nothing in the scriptures abide there arbitrarily. A ruler of the Jews. What was he? Why did the Bible include that? Because it's difficult to tell people that a ruler is what to do. Right? If a person likes to tell others what to do, nothing is more unpleasant than telling a ruler what to do. When people like to rule their own lives, rule their own choices, rule their own destiny, one of the most difficult things to do is tell a ruler what to do. So, and rulers don't like people to know about their decisions, so they try to keep their decisions hush-hush. That's why John chapter 3 and verse 2 is there. Because it was something that was, there was something about Jesus that troubled the life of this Pharisee named Nicodemus. But he didn't want the crowd to know about the discomfort in his heart. So he came to Jesus at a time when he think that people would not know. And all of a sudden, Ryan... He came, he tried to hide his intentions, but Jesus recorded his story to let everybody know what he did. Look at this. John 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, he comes with words of commendation. We know that you are a teacher, came from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's nice. But I cannot miss the point that he came to Jesus by night. Can I say something? It's better to come to Jesus when it's dark than not to come to Jesus at all. A lot of people think when it's dark, it's not a good time to come to Jesus. It's better to come to Jesus when it's dark, when life is dark when the future is bleak, when the sun is setting on your health, when everything and everyone around you disappoints you, it is never too dark to come to Jesus. Never too dark. 
So when people say, I don't know if God wants me to come to him. Oh, that's when he does want you to come to him. When you think that you're not worthy, come. When you think that you've done something too bad to come to Christ, come. When you think that you have sinned so bad that nobody would even accept you, there's somebody who would. His name is Jesus. Come. Come to Jesus by night. Nicodemus had almost everything that the common man could desire. He had wealth. He had position. He had influence. He had power. He had education. But he did not have a personal, internal kingdom life. And he came looking for that. And he waited until night so that no one can see him. And why did he do that? When you read the story, Nicodemus was the kind of guy that was concerned to, a, to the great degree of what people thought about him than what Christ thought about him. But he came with words of commendation. And when you study the life of Nicodemus, he was not an ignorant man. He studied the prophecies about the appearing of the Messiah. So he knew that there was something about Jesus that could possibly qualify him as being the Christ. He was in the crowd when John the Baptist introduced Jesus. He kept track of the life of Christ for more than two years. He was impressed by the authority that Jesus spoke with, and he knew that there was something about Jesus that was divine. But what does that say about Nicodemus and us? You know, having the facts about Jesus is not conversion. Good Bible study life hanging out with religious people, keeping track of Jesus, being impressed by his life, knowing what the Bible says about the coming of the Messiah. All of those things are factual, but that is still not the kingdom life until Christ is inside of your heart. That's why Jesus got to the core of the issue about kingdom living when he unfolded the reality to Nicodemus in verse 3. And notice his words. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born how? Again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When I first read that text, it wasn't many years ago, but when I first read that text, it came to me, uh, I, had a, I, had a, I had an epiphany, and I told you the story when I was dating uh, Angela. And that Friday night, when I was at her house and I was planning to go to a party right after that family worship. We had family worship that Friday night at her house. And uh, some of you I told the story to, but I couldn't, I couldn't date her outright, but I could come to family worship. Her brothers didn't want me to date her. And I look back, I look back now and I thought, they were smart. Because um, she's still fine. And being the youngest girl in the family, bringing the youngest child, period, they were, they were serious about protecting their sister. And so I couldn't come to date her, but I could come to family worship. And, um, and she told me right, right out, right. She said, I'm, I'm not interested in dating anybody who doesn't have the same relationship with Jesus as I, ha as I have. So I was asking the question, well, what do you want with me? Because I was a partier, I was a gambler, I was a pool hustler, living the life of the city. What did you want with me? And she told me later on, she said, well, you were so cute, I wanted to convert you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very much. 
And I look back on the picture and I say, well, I wasn't looking too bad myself. I, didn't, I had a couple of things together. My life was a mess. So she kept inviting me until one Friday night she introduced me to the great controversy and read those chapters to me. And that was the Friday night when my life was right here at the pivotal point, unless you are born again. I would go to work every day at Bank of America with a boom box and a pool stick. And some of you heard this story before, so bear with me for those who have not heard it. Boom box, big old gigantic radio and a pool stick. And I got my suit on working at Bank of America. Lunchtime was the boom box. After work was the pool stick. Right there in city, right there across from City Hall, big old gigantic pool room, like 24 pool tables. Back then they smoked. It's not like nowadays where you could go in and not know. So when I went to play pool, I came out smelling like I was dipped in liquid smoke, although I didn't smoke. And sometimes I'd take her with me, and uh, Angie would go because she said, I'm going to just hang around this guy long enough till I could get him to do right. And I was at Friday night partying on the 44th floor in the World Trade Center, and who would show up out of the dark? Angie would. Rebuking me on Friday night, Ryan, what are you doing in here? You know it's a Sabbath. So what are you doing here? Let me just tell you young guys something. Don't try to hide from your woman. They'll always find out something. So there she was, and I'm rebuking me on Friday night. And I said, I'll be at church tomorrow. Just go home. And she didn't listen to me. She came early Sabbath morning, throwing stones at my window, waking me up, making sure I'm at church, sitting in the back, sleeping. I call it the breakneck during the sermon, not listening to a word. But she kept on, kept on, kept on, kept on until that Friday night when the Lord found a way in. And I understood this text so beautifully because I was the guy that wanted to understand it all before I made a decision to follow Christ. So my excuse was, while we were dating, I went to a Nazarene church to investigate whether or not I need to keep the Sabbath. And you heard that story. They put me out because I asked this question about the Sabbath. <laughs> I, went to a, I went to a Pentecostal church. I asked about the Sabbath. They put me out too. I went to a Catholic church and asked about the Sabbath. And they are the only one, only one that told me the truth. I was, I was concerned with religious detail. I wanted to know how to win religious arguments. And her, uh, one of her brothers that's now deceased would teach me how to, how to contend with Jehovah's Witnesses. See, I was content to have religious activity, how to, defend, how to defend the Sabbath, how to defend the law of God. I knew how to do that, but I was just as deep a sinner as you can find. And I'd wait for Jehovah's Witnesses just to prove to them I knew some scriptures. But I wasn't living any of it. That's why the Lord said to Nicodemus, you know a lot, but until you're born again, you cannot see. And there are certain things that we will never see until we are born again. Not that we won't see it theologically, but we will never, the Lord will never allow us to cross from the natural sight to the spiritual sight until we are spiritual. You can't see it. So for those of you that want to see everything before you give your life to Christ, you can't. Unless a person is born again, they cannot see. Unless they are born again, they cannot see. Can they see? They cannot see. Because the eyes have not yet been changed. Notice how the Bible illustrates this clearly. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Let me move right along. The fact is, 
Jesus is correct. That's why one of the first things he did to convert Paul is he took his sight away. He closed his eyes to open his eyes. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. That's why Paul was able to write this. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. Natural eyes cannot see and understand spiritual things. Let me take it a step further. You will drive yourself crazy trying to understand spiritual things in a natural life. It won't make sense. How do I know I had friends in New York City when I went back? Looking all cleaned up, straightened up. When I told one of my friends I'm a pastor, he said, you? A pastor? How'd that happen? <laughs> I don't know. It happened. So David, it's okay. Ian, don't worry about it. God does some strange stuff. Brian, hang in there. God is looking for anybody who's looking for him. Can you say amen? God can use anybody. I, how do I know? Exhibit A. God can use anybody that's willing to be used by God. But if you try to understand everything before you give your life to Christ, you cannot see. Because there are certain things that just won't make sense. Because you have to have on illustration. <clears throat> uh, the last trip we went on, I forgot my sunglasses back at the hotel. And we went to this beautiful beach in Aruba. And Angie's going, ah, oh, wow. I say, what's wrong? She said, oh, it's just so beautiful. I look, I look, it looks okay. And she gave me her glasses, which were real glass, polarized, filtered. She said, no, look, look, look at this, put this on, and then you see what I'm talking about. When I put it on, you know what I did? Ah. <laughs> You're right. That's beautiful. And she was so kind, she said, give me my glasses back. <laughs> You'll never know until God changes your eyesight. Can the church say amen? There are certain things. Don't drive yourself crazy any longer. You can do something about the things you don't understand. When you give your life to Christ, it starts to make sense. When you give your life to Jesus, it starts making sense. Look what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29, he makes it so clear how the learned and the intellectual people cannot understand the things of God. Notice what he says. This is so beautiful. He knows because he was there. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, 
Those are the categories where if you want good leaders, you call the wise people, the mighty people, the noble people. But Paul says that's not who God calls. But God, here's, here's how I got in the ministry. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Hmm. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. What is Paul saying? He says, you might have degree after degree after degree after degree. That's just more paper to burn up when Jesus comes. <laughs> you might have money and wealth and fame and fortune. I've seen people that have had money. We can't even count the number of zeros at the end of their, the figures that are leading the way. But they would give anything if they could trade what we have for what they don't have. I know billionaires that are struggling to hold on with life. They would rather be broke and healthy than be wealthy and on the way to the grave. I know educated people that they have intellect. They could figure out things to the nth degree. Stock market, the fall and rise of the economy, but they don't know Jesus and there is a residing lack of, lack of peace and joy because they spend all their waking hours, as one guy said to me, Oh, I mean, I, I watch the stock market all day long. Can you imagine how, can you imagine how depressing that may be when you, when you face an economy that's going down, how pleasant a stock market may be? Like one gentleman in New York City many years ago, he had $10 million. And the story came out after he killed himself. He lost a million dollars in the stock market and jumped off of one of the buildings in New York City. He had $9 million left. People that are blind embrace the substitutes to spirituality. They prefer earthly pleasure, fame, material and financial wealth, status in society, and a life without accountability. But all of that combined could never bring the joy and the lasting peace that you can have when you understand the beauty of the kingdom life. So why is it so difficult? Jesus answers the question in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. By what gate? The narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way. That's why all the cities where the corruption is, they call it Broadway. We don't have a Broadway in Thompsonville. Ain't nothing wide enough. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Why? Because narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, why does the Bible say difficult is the way? It doesn't mean that the Christian life in itself is difficult. Now, we have trials too. But our light afflictions, Ryan, are but for a moment. 
because it's just a part of the 60 to 70 or 80 or 90, in some cases the very few that make it past 90. It's just, a, it's just a vapor of a life. I would rather have difficulty in the vapor span of human existence and joy throughout eternity than have it the other way around, than to lose all that. So when Jesus said it's difficult to find, he is saying that the road is not difficult, but the natural man will not lead you down a road that will put his nature in jeopardy. An alcoholic doesn't want to go to church. A drug dealer doesn't want to go to church. A person that's a thief or a robber or an immoral individual, those things don't bring any joy to them. And the natural person is like the thief, can't find Jesus for the same reason that the thief can't find a police officer because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't appeal to the person. It doesn't appeal to that individual. However, there's a however. You ready for the however? If people only understood the peace and the joy and the confidence and the blessed assurance. Because I'll be honest with you, the world around us is crumbling, is it not? But let it crumble because this world is not my final destination. It must crumble, let it come down. I can't wait till it comes down so God can bring the new one back. But for people that have all their eggs in this basket, all their stocks in this market, all their hope in the, the economy, all their plans in what the economists and the politicians can do are not people that have peace. If they could only understand that the kingdom life means so much more. That's why Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, he said, those of you that don't know about the kingdom life, you've got your mind in the wrong direction. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's those outside the kingdom life. That's the best you're going to get from the devil. Steal, kill, and in the end, destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it. How, friends? More abundantly. Anybody know what I'm talking about? After traveling to more than 60 countries, after being married, It's hard to imagine. But you know what's beautiful about that? <clears throat> Outside of vacation, we hadn't had to pay a red cent to go to any one of those countries. Because God will get you ready. God will get you ready and open before you the entire world. God will get you. He's not going to put you out there to shame his name. He's not going to put you out there when he knows that the way you live is a risk to the glory of his kingdom. And if he knows that the way you're living is a risk to the glory of his kingdom, he will wax you and whack you and lead you and cook you and warm you up until you get back on track before he puts you out there to defame his name. But people that are natural don't understand that. They think that their way is best. But the wise man who understood that, that the way he chose was not the best, in Proverbs 14, verse 12, the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. So when people tell you that you don't need Jesus and life without him brings lasting joy, that's a lie. I've been out there already. I haven't done everything. Thank God for that. 
But you don't need to do everything to know the joy of serving Christ. You don't need to do everything wrong to appreciate what's right. But sometimes we, we get enamored by people that, you know, serve 15 years in the state pen or took out nine people and did these horrible crimes. Sometimes we need to rejoice over people that didn't do that. People that were raised in the church and stayed there. Can we give them a hearty amen? amen? You know, some people that are in the house that never left the house get jealous when somebody who did that and come back in the house gets all the accolade. You went to, you went to State Penn? Yeah. What was it like? We need to rejoice that there are some people that never left the house and God is living through their lives. Sometimes we glorify the people that had done all the dark things and gave their lives to Christ. But it's good to sometimes rejoice that we can look at those who've never left. The reality of it is we've got to understand that you don't even have to commit a crime to be lost. You don't have to have a record to be lost. There is no kingdom life without Christ because why? It is not what you have done, but it is who we are that makes the difference. As I close, let me illustrate these very quick points. Romans 5.12, what do I mean by it is who we are? You don't have to have a criminal record. You don't have to have this long list of all these horrible things you did, and you, but, but then you're still outside of the kingdom life. You're still not in the kingdom life because it's not what you've done, but it's who we are. The Bible makes it clear when sin entered the world through Adam, therefore, Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man, what happened? Sin entered the world. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all because what? All have sinned. And then the Apostle Paul makes it clear, because of Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Let me point out something that you may have missed. You notice the word all on both sides? This is the beautiful thing about it. How many people were condemned because of Adam? How many people could be saved because of Christ? What the Bible is in essence saying is sin does not abound greater than grace. The grace of God can save anyone who was lost. Sin is not greater than the grace of God. Sin is not more powerful than the condemnation that came upon all humanity. By one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. However... As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But all you've got to do to be lost is do nothing. All you've got to be do to be lost is do nothing. All you've got to do to miss out on your final destination is make absolutely no choice about the kingdom that's before you. That's why Paul made it clear, for, as in, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. All you've got to do is do nothing to change your final destination and you will be lost. But all you've got to do to be saved is accept what Jesus has done. And when I thought about this in the context of where I am and where I used to be, I came up with the beautiful illustration that Jesus brings out clearly in John 3 and verse 18. This is so wonderful. Notice what he says to us. 
about the predicament that all of humanity found itself in. You could be born in a wealthy family or in a poor family. You're in the same category. You could be born in royalty or in poverty. The outcome is the same for anyone that takes a breath on this planet. John 3.18, he who believes in him is what? Is not condemned. But he who does not believe is what? Condemned already. I want you to grab that. The Lord doesn't condemn you because you don't believe. You're already condemned. He's trying to reverse the predicament you already find yourself in. You're on the wrong flight. You're moving in the wrong direction. The way you're going is not going to end well. The choices that you have before you are none of the choices that will lead to kingdom living. It will not lead to a life of peace and joy and satisfaction and freedom. He said, I've just come to change that. Everything on this side is condemned already, but I've just come to change that. And why are they condemned? Because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, this is where Jesus comes in. And I'm going to invite, <clears throat> I'm going to invite Danielle to come up and begin to play because I want to end this on the note that God has given to me. I am so glad that in my life I met a man who called himself the agent of change. The agent of change. Not the secret agent. Not the devil agent. But the agent of change. Because we were born with a death sentence and Jesus changed it to a life sentence. We were born sinners, and Jesus changed our standing to saints. We were born destined for hell, and Jesus changed our destiny to heaven. And Ryan, I don't want to take up your thunder, but can I use the same scripture? Thank you very much for saying yes. Can we say it together? John 3, 16, I love it just like he does. For God, come on now, so love the world. This is a love we'll never understand. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him, what are those three words? Should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is what the Lord did not send Jesus to do. For God did not send his son into the world to do what? To condemn the world, but that the world through him what? might be saved. The gospel is good news because it condemns sin. It never condemns the sinner. For so long we've been led to believe that the problem is in us. No, we've inherited the problem. Adam gave us a nature that messed us up. And we were helpless to break the chains and the power of sin. But Jesus came and interrupted what sin destined us to experience. He came and made that interruption so clear that when the Apostle Paul grabbed it, every time I try to find a scripture better than this one, I come back to this one. I like John 3.16, but can I confess? I like this one even better. Romans 5, <clears throat> verse 6 to 10. Why do I like this scripture? <clears throat> because this scripture says, Jesus did not wait till I got right with him. 
to open up to me the possibilities of a love that I would not understand. For when we were still without strength, in due time, what did Jesus do? He died for the ungodly before we even were worthy of it. Matter of fact, we'll never be worthy of it. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But no sweeter words have been spoken but God. Can you say that with me? But God demonstrated his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, who would do that? Christ died for us. Much more than Paul takes it to the next step. Having now been justified by his blood, I could get on board. We shall be saved from wrath through him. And then he caps it off. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be what? Saved by his life. Can I get an amen to that? Isn't that beautiful? He says, you were reconciled before you even accepted him, but now that you have been reconciled, you can now benefit from the, from the provision of reconciliation. You shall be saved by his life. <clears throat> you know, before we aborted, before we boarded American Airlines, we had to show proof. It's crazy what it took for us to get to Aruba. We had to show proof that we had been approved for entry by the government of Aruba. You couldn't just go to Aruba like you go to Miami. But before we got approval, we had to go to a, an internet portal and answer pages of question, question after question after question on the Aruba travel portal. I mean, we looked at that thing and it was so intricately detailed. After a certain point, we said, why don't we go someplace else like Hawaii? Because they were answer, answering questions. I'm thinking, so many details. And then after that, we had to submit legal documents to prove our identity. And then a scanned copy of our passport, accompanied Tracy by an additional photo of us today, then the proof that we had a COVID vaccine and a COVID test. And I thought to myself, honey, do we have to go to Aruba? But you know what? When we got to the beach and put our feet in that clear water and laid on that white sand, we said it was worth it. My brothers and sisters, with Jesus, we don't need a passport. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Can the church say amen? With Jesus, the only question we need to answer is put a yes. Do you want eternal life? The only portal that laid before us is the door from death to life. You want to go through that portal. You don't need to prove your identity when you become a child of God. Jesus is inviting us on board because 
we have been cleared by his life. Jesus wants to put his kingdom in us before he puts us in his kingdom. And if it seems like a whole lot to do, I can guarantee you that when you see the crystal clear waters of the river of life, and you see the crystal clear walls of the city of life, and when you see the golden shores of the city of God, it will be worth it. Can the church say amen? So today I want to ask you the question, what about your final destination? Is there somebody here today that wants to accept the final destination before us? How do we get that final destination? Here it is. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Today, the Lord wants to take away the one thing that is between you and eternity, you and your final destination. Is there somebody here today that wants to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to make a decision about my final destination. I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when Jesus comes, not only will I be in the kingdom, but before he comes, I want the kingdom in me. Is there somebody here today that by the raising of the hand wants that to be their experience? They want the kingdom of God in them not just to be in the kingdom of God. They want that final destination to be one that they look forward to, not just something that is going to happen arbitrarily. Because I want to tell you, when we all get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Can I get an amen? When we all see Jesus, what will we do, Ryan? Ryan, could you come up and help me sing this song? I'm just, I know Mike, I'm going to just let him use a prayer, Mike. I need somebody with some clear lungs, and I think Ryan might have a pair. I want us to stand up together and sing that song as those who are serious about their final destination. And we're going to sing all the stanzas. I'm not going to cut any short, because we've been singing about all these other things, all these temporary places. We're going to sing about the final destination. Can you help us out, Ryan? Let's do it. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing His mercy and His grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. about till then while we walk the pilgrim pathway clouds will over spread the sky but when traveling days are over not a shadow not a sigh when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be We'll sing and shout the victory. What do we do then? Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving. I love this part. Just one glimpse. Just one glimpse of Him in glory. Will the tongue 
Let's raise that chorus together. When we all get there, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. What direction, friends? Onward to the prize before us. Soon his beauty will be home. Why? Soon the pearly gates will open. We shall tread the streets of love. When will that happen? When we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all We'll sing and shout the victory. Amen. Amen. When we all get to heaven, you plan on going? Oh, before you get into the kingdom, the kingdom wants to get into you. Before you get into the place that God has gone to prepare, he's already prepared a place for us now. That is Christ in us. The hope of glory, this beautiful life, that lets you enjoy godly things, spiritual things, holy things, that gives you an honest disdain for darkness and sin, that honestly turns you off to corruption and things that are not of the kingdom until the darkness of this world becomes distasteful to you. You will not understand kingdom living. You got to hate it so that you want to leave it behind. You can't love it to the last minute and then let it go. You got to let it go. Walk with Jesus so that when he comes, you'll say, I've been living with you all, all this time. I'm looking forward to what you had prepared for me. Is that your desire today? When we get to heaven, that's going to be the final destination. But Jesus wants to land on your heart today. And I pray that you give him the right. Give him clearance for landing in your life, changing the way you live, loving the things he loves. Father in heaven, you've come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But so many of us postpone or put off kingdom living because the enemy has convinced us that somehow there's something you're about to lose that's of greater value than eternity. And that's a lie. It's not true. The best is before us. Christ wants to come in us and bring eternity within our reach. He wants to bring a taste of heaven in us, the mind of heaven, the life of heaven. He wants us to experience it now. He wants us to walk on cattle firmer, looking forward to terra firmer. He wants us to be on earth, saying like Abraham, I'm looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He wants us to be unsatisfied like Enoch, and one day we are swept away to enjoy the joys of eternity. And Father, you are soon to come. The final destination has been set. But Father, by your shed blood, may we accept the price paid for our seat. May we accept the conditions for clearance into the government of eternity. May we allow you to clean us up, to get us on board, and to look forward to one day hearing Jesus say, prepare for arrival. 
Prepare for arrival. And we see the gleams of the golden morning. And then we understand how it was worth making a decision about our final destination. But Lord, trouble us until that day. If we have not yet made that decision, make us uncomfortable. Don't force our hand, but make our road difficult that we may understand there's only one sweet path, and that's the path that we can walk with you. And we pray this, that no one would be lost on that glorious day, that they will all be in your eternal kingdom. I know that's your desire. May it be ours, we ask, in your holy and precious name. And all of God's people said, Amen.